0: Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. I'm joined this time by Rob Ford now. Not Rob Ford, the scandal-prone Mayor of Toronto, nor Rob Ford, the man who killed Jesse James, or even Rob Ford, the Dundee FC footballer, but Rob Ford, pr- politics professor at Manchester University and co-author of a new book, Brexitland, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics. So welcome to the show, Rob.
1: i very happy to be here.
0: Now, your new book written with uh, Maria Sobolewska looks at how long-term trends have driven the current polarisation that we see in British politics. So just should we kick off with a quick introduction to what are those trends that you've pulled out in the book and what what has their impact been?
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's kind of two overlapping sets of trends. The, the, the first are demographic. So the, the the demographic composition of the British electorate is changing over time and the political impact of that is often underestimated because it's a very slow process um, but the two trends in particular which we think uh, are of mounting importance are educational transformation um, you know which uh, is very good news for me as a university professor <laughs> the share of people going to university is, is, is rising ever upwards um, but the cumulative effects of that is quite dramatic in terms of the sort of cohort of twenty-somethings right now, uh, roughly nearly half of them will be at university. Amongst their grandparents, it would have been closer to five percent. So it's a sort of ten-fold rise. And the second trend is ethnic diversity. Uh, so that, that's probably more well known. But the, you know, again, two generations ago, Britain was a pretty relatively mono-ethnic society, particularly outside of the biggest cities now we are a very diverse society and becoming rapidly more so and the reason we think those two trends matter is that that now much abuse phrase identity politics because um, education in the majority population is very strongly associated with views about what could be crudely summarized as us versus them politics attachments particular in groups feelings of threat from particular kinds of out groups and ethnic minority voters themselves come into that equation in a slightly different way in that they often have the same kind of you know in group out group uh, psychology but they have a very strong collective group interest in not being on the receiving end of majority group hostility Uh, i mean we're talking right now at the beginning of october uh, the, the presidential debates, the first presidential debate happened a few days ago. And the word had...
0: debate is generous to the <laughs> shouting match that that was. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it, it was, was more like a Christmas argument between elderly relatives than a debate, <laughs> uh, but it featured the incumbent president mm. refusing to denounce um, white supremacist groups. Mm. Now, um, that will have a particular resonance if you are a voter who is sort of white and ethnocentric, views ethnic minorities as threatening, but it will have a very different but equally powerful resonance if you are yourself from an ethnic minority group because then you have an incumbent president saying, people from my ethnic group who really dislike you, um, I'm not gonna denounce them, I side with them. So ethnic minority voters come into this identity politics um, sort of uh, alignment in a slightly different way because it's It's not so much that they see you know anti racism as a kind of disinterested social value as as white graduates will it's more that they have a direct interest in ensuring society becomes less prejudiced.
0: I guess the puzzling thing perhaps about those two trends you pulled out is that if you were to sort of really simplify it down, I think a lot of people perhaps particularly small L liberal people, maybe only small L liberal people, but a lot of people would say that if there's going to be a future in which more and more people are better educated and there's greater ethnic diversity in the population, that's going to result in a society and a politics that increasingly tilts liberal. Um, it doesn't feel like that's what those long-term trends have bequeathed us in the last few years. So so is it in part the a backlash almost to those trends that has generated what we've seen in the last few years.
1: Um, yes, in part. I mean, I, I think that there, 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 are, there are two answers to why that that hasn't quite happened. Well, three actually. Firstly, in many areas of life, it has happened uh, and, and happened in a way that when you zoom out and talk about time, uh, social time in terms of decades rather than individual years is quite Dramatic. Uh, for example, in terms of uh, attitudes to say something like gay marriage, the the, the transition is 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 dramatic uh, within my lifetime as a forty-year-old. Um, you know, we've gone from a situation where the bulk of the population would regard that as as not just uh, uh, undesirable, but they'd be actively opposed to it, to a situation where it's regarded as you know unremarkable. Um, yeah,
0: I mean that's and that's a good point, isn't it? I, which I think is easy to forget that when um, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but not that much older than you. But, you know, when either of us were kids, a politician being revealed to be in a same-sex partnership would have been a matter of scandal. Yes. now marriage is legal. And in a way, although it is horribly traumatic for those involved in on the front line of the current struggle over trans rights, the fact that that is the flashpoint shows how much progress there has been over over the last few decades
1: yes because and you know the the, 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 what's often missed when we talk about culture wars is is that a a lot of culture scuffles a lot of a lot of individual battles in in that broader culture war quote unquote have been won by the liberal side over over the decades another example which we mention in the book is if you go back and watch some of the popular sitcoms from the 1970s and the kind of racial stereotypes and tropes that were regarded as entirely uncontroversial by producers at ITV or even the BBC and there's
0: one season of Blackadder particularly which is just makes me cringe and I guess I may be cringing more than is fair, given, you know, given who was involved in that season. But nonetheless, you think that would be a, certainly very controversial, shall we say, if a new TV series like that was aired. Was aired? Now, I, to just digress slightly, this does raise my favourite point of bafflement over Culture Wars, which is that... The political conventional wisdom in Britain and in the US, and I think in other countries as well, is that the right wants to fight culture wars and that fighting culture wars is politically beneficial for them. And so all the talk at the moment about, for example, how Keir Starmer is deliberately trying to avoid getting into culture wars. And And yet, as you say, the long term picture seems to be that although the right likes fighting culture wars, it's not the right that ends up winning culture wars.
1: Yeah, it is it is a paradox. And I I think the resolution to that paradox lies in two things. Firstly, different parts of society move in the same direction, but at very different rates. So you get growing divergence in attitudes for that reason. So, you know, today's 25 year old school leavers um, will be more socially conservative than their university graduate friends. Uh, but the gap will potentially be bigger than the gap was between graduates and school leavers who are sort of 65 um, so graduates have liberalized very fast um, yep. school leavers have liberalized somewhat slower but have liberalized so relatively they oh, interesting more, you know so they they look further apart because they're moving at different rates and the reason the right likes to exploit that is because of the way this links up to other social divides and attitudes. So in the so-called red wall seats that have become you know, so much the locus of discussion mm. in the last year or so, you get lots of voters who are economically quite left-wing. Um, they don't particularly like free market capitalism, they don't trust bosses, they don't think they mm. get a fair deal, they don't think society is equitable but they're also very socially conservative um, and relatively speaking in particular, look relatively socially conservative compared to, uh, you know, middle-class university graduates in big cities Mm. who infamously are people overrepresented in our political class. So the right then basically moves the locus of political argument to those cultural issues because on those cultural issues, these voters like them. Whereas on economic issues, um they're not so keen um they they're more inclined to align with the left uh, so that's that's the, the major reason tactically from the supply side in terms of the parties the reason that it works is because not always but very often um these kinds of identity issues this has been particularly true with immigration in britain in the last 20 years tend to be really salient for what we in the book call identity conservative voters. So voters who think immigrants are a threatening out group tend to regard stopping immigration as a priority in politics, which opens them to the right. Whereas voters that think immigration is a good thing and are quite happy with the status quo of relatively open borders don't tend to prioritize maintaining that open border system. So you've got got a salience differential right there. You know, your socially conservative voters care about identity issues to a greater extent than liberal voters care about identity Mm. issues even though both you know they have very different views on them but only one side is really mobilizing behind those views.
0: Mm.
1: I I think that
0: sort of point you mentioned about the everyone can be becoming more liberal but becoming more liberal at different speeds means you can both have an overall shift in a liberal direction whilst also greater strains Mm. Feels, feels to me a point I've not heard other people make previously but but does sort of capture quite a it almost almost you know makes a nice little mini grand theory to help explain an awful lot of british politics so i'm certainly gonna i'm certainly gonna go and ponder that more after after we finished recording this but i think what's notable in all that we've discussed is that all of this points towards lots of ways in which you might therefore expect our politics to change um and therefore, maybe the referendum result in some respects in 2016 was perhaps not quite so consequential as it's normally painted as being. I mean, one sense, clearly massively consequential because of the referendum result, we're leaving the EU or rather have left the EU and, you know, the transition period is coming to an end. As, uh, however, if the referendum had just gone the other way, I guess the counterfactual is that levers would have not gone away. and in a sense, why should they have? Because the remainders didn't go away. Levers would have not gone away and it would still be an ongoing you know it would still be an ongoing battle, particularly if it had been a close result. And, but even a, a clearer result in Scotland you know didn't put in the, the idea of independence to bed for a generation. So, so maybe the referendum result in 2016 was not quite so important a turning point as is often made out to be.
1: Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. I I don't think that the the, the direction that it fell down in um, mattered as much as people imagine it did in terms of what's come after. And I think Scotland is exactly the right um, counterfactual to use with that, because that was a slightly larger margin the other way in terms of keeping the status quo. But, you know, once the genie was out of the bottle in terms of this mobilization around a kind of really, binary identity issue and, and in both of these referendums what's really important to bear in mind is that they've become freighted up with all sorts of symbolic meaning that really aren't to do with the narrow question that the referendum mm. was about you know leaving or staying in in the UK for Scottish voters is as much about contrasting visions of Scottish society and where they want Scotland to go Mm. as it is about anything to do with the relative costs and benefits uh, of being in that particular constitutional arrangement. Same thing with the, the leave and remain vote. These have become big important complex parts of people's personal political identities you know i mean sometimes i think it's worth taking a step back and remembering just how remarkable this is when i was teaching my electoral politics courses five years ago um, when cameron won his surprise majority if i'd have used the term remainer or lever, it would have been a sea of blank stares those mean those words had no political meaning if i teach a bunch of 18 year olds today they have immediate and very clear meaning there are social stereotypes attitude stereotypes value stereotypes attached to those words which people can immediately call to mind and that has been conjured out of nothing by this referendum result and if the result had been 5248 the other way those identities with all of that symbolic and emotional resonance that they've acquired would be would be there in the same way the arguments would of course be very different um uh i think we know we we know for sure, from regards to Mr. Farage's statements that the campaign would have immediately started for another referendum. Yeah, <laughs> and the people who currently uh, pour a great deal of you know cold war you know uh, you lost get over it was a cliche on the Leave side quite quickly um, that they would have been completely the other way around if it had been fifty-two forty-eight the other way it, we and again we've seen that in scotland it did not take long for the discussion to start to be about oh well things have changed therefore we need another referendum and uh, it's it's easy to see a counterfactual
0: in which the referendum just wins um, but as a result of that actually labor ends up not being impaled on brexit in the way that it does at some point labor wins an election there's a labor government britain is still in the eu and what does a Tory opposition do in order to try to win back power? Well, it looks at all those people who support leaving the EU, who voted leave in that referendum, who are in Labour seats, that the Tories think, oh, this is the way we could kick Labour out. And you can easily see then a Conservative Party in this counterfactual winning an election at some point on a mandate to leave the EU and, you know, the red wall crumbles in in slightly different circumstances, but nonetheless crumbles. Now, of course, one of the things about history is because we only get to go through it once. We never quite know it's, whether something was inevitable or not. But crunch question, if you, re- if, you had to, if you had to sort of take the courage of your hypotheticals, do you think Brexit was inevitable then? Would it have happened one way or another?
1: No, I don't think it was inevitable. I mean, it's another thing we try and emphasize repeatedly through our book. I mean, we're we're big believers in the importance of long term changes, demographic changes, in terms of setting the climate for politics. But we definitely don't want to fall into the trap of imagining that political parties are just passengers in that process, that they just passively react to these changes and can't shape them. Um, We definitely believe that that the choices parties and party leaders make you know it's it's like something like whitewater rafting I'm not a great whitewater rafter but I remember doing it as a teenager you can't easily go upstream it's much easier to go downstream but you can steer a course and this, this the choices you make in steering a course through that current are pretty consequential you might end up on the rocks you might not so there are choices I think that the parties and politicians could have made about how they particularly with the 52-48 result there were choices that could have been made about how to frame the eu Uh, the negotiations could have gone differently perhaps if our european partners had realized just how imminent this threat was they might have offered mr cameron more concessions back in the negotiation phase and then it might have been a more credible claim to have renegotiated britain's membership that could have swung things. Of course, the the Labour leader's uh, attitude to the referendum campaign similarly might have been different if he'd have been aware of the imminence of the threat. So there are many things we can point to, and I think we would be right to point to, because I I do not think one should fall into the trap of fatalism uh, about demographic or other kinds of social trends. Politicians have the power to shape how voters see the kind of conflicts that emerge out of these trends and, and the job that they do on that is really important and really consequential and it's something that I would definitely want to emphasize it matters and again Scotland provides an example of that we talk in the book a great deal about how Scotland is structurally similar to England in terms of having a big socially conservative identity conservative electorate the difference is in part because of 30 years of hard political work by the s Those voters, when they're thinking in terms of us and them, the us they think of is Scotland, the them they think of tends to be an amalgam of England, Westminster and the Conservative Party, which is a tremendously effective kind of villain for the SNP to have created. But it is in part a creation of SNP politicians. Now, those voters would always be prone to think in terms of us and them. But who is the us and who is the them? Politicians have a role to, to, to play in filling that picture in.
0: Mm. And I, I mean, there's a, there's a fascinating history to be written at some point of the political long-term trends that didn't come to fruition. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm always reminded of two, one which is not really that relevant in terms of in geopolitics, but the number of apparently very convincing and erudite works about how shortage of water supplies in the Middle East would trigger conflict. And I mean, the Middle East, sadly, has not been short of conflict, but it's not been water that has, you know, there have been all sorts of other causes of conflict, but water has not become the dominant sort of driving factor that many apparently you know, well-founded pro- prognostications pointed to, and um, but also more relevantly in this context is I think if we were talking in the early late seventies or early eighties, there was a very convincing sounding story to tell and was told in some very good books and so on about the long-term trends in British politics depolarisation show um the decline sorry of the of the two-party system how hung parliaments were going to be more likely in future the rise of the third party and all of that and then we got uh what six general elections in a row with a one-party majority mm. uh, and 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 even with hindsight even if you go back now and read some of the stuff that was written at the time it's not obviously wrong other than the fact that clearly those trains didn't and i guess to go back to your white water rafting analogy the question is whether you've you've actually there's actually a fork in the river or not because if there isn't a fork in the river then in a way the difference between whether you end up on the rocks on the left or turned over on the right your body dead or alive is still going to end up in the same place <laughs> but if there's a fork in the river that's when actually which way you steer can make a massive difference um, and so, what's do, in that sense? Do you feel that generally there is, there are lots of forks in the river, and therefore there is quite a lot of agency for individual politicians, or is it the river? You know, the long-term trends does pretty much drive the big picture, and what politicians can can manage is more the detail within that. Because yeah, you know, being dashed on the rocks or drowned, you know, is different.
1: <laughs> I think I think there are um in in big inconsequential forks um in the river um i think parties do they they do it rarely because it's a very difficult thing to do for both internal reasons in terms of you know parties internal coalitions tend to be quite invested in a particular view of what they should be about and quite resistant to major shifts in that uh, and for external reasons, which is that voters tend to have quite settled views of what a party is about, and it takes time to shift those too. But clearly, when you know, when, when you get uh, to sh- you know to, to confuse our listeners by shifting back to the, the starting analogy, when you get a situation like water shortages in the Middle East, where everybody, you know, can see we're going to run out of water unless we do something, then it can produce the kind of big fundamental change. That avoids the problem happening. It, you know, uh, it doesn't arrive in the same way. So the example I would use um, is what happened with Labour, um, with with Mr. Tony Blair, of course. Now, um, some of my colleagues on the British Election Study in uh, writing about the 1992 election, wrote wrote a book famously called Labour's Last Chance. Mm. Subsequently learned that not all of the authors named on that were happy with that title for reasons that became obvious soon after. I've got that book on my shelf. I will go and look at the list of authors with interest later. (laughs) I will say no more on that. But, um, you know, Philip Gould, a few years later, used to wave this book around and go, see, it wasn't our last chance. It wasn't. (laughs) But the reason it wasn't was precisely because of the complete acceptance across all parts of the party that that it had to change and change profoundly. And in changing and changing profoundly, it shifted where it stood in relation to those kinds of demographic trends. And one could argue that something similar seemed to be happening with the Cameron Conservative Party before Mm -hmm. Brexit interrupted it. Um, They accepted the idea that, that the trend towards a more diverse and socially liberal society posed long-term peril for the conservatives and thus we had uh, you know the 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 gay marriage bill to come back to that point and we had um, you know active recruitment of ethnic minority conservative mps into safe seats one of the things which means as stephen bush was writing a good piece a couple of weeks ago on this that you know the first ethnic minority conservative prime minister what may well be sorry the first ethnic minority prime minister may well be a conservative Hmm. because it's the conservatives who can see the urgent electoral interest in uh, in um, I'm not sure that's Stephen's argument. That would be my argument. That they, they see a more urgent electoral interest in in doing that. Mm. So forks in the river do arrive, and I think in many ways the most consequential thing from the perspective of the parties is whether they recognise soon enough that what's mm. coming is a fork and that they need to make a choice, and that choice need can involve like you know costly and difficult change that that you know many of their Uh, members or MPs may well resist. Um, And that, again, is easier to spot in retrospect than in prospect, of course.
0: And and I guess the, the big question that in the different ways actually both Labour and the Tories face in that respect is that a quite significant shift in political geography of Britain in the last few years. And although the Red Wall phrase and concept has various problems, you know in terms of exactly how it's defined and how read for how long some of the seats really have been and so on nonetheless that sense that the tories are pitching to win more seats in the northwest and fewer seats in the home counties than you know has been the norm for a long time previously and conversely for labor that let you know in terms of where labor is most concerned to regain seats there's there's a both parties are at the moment a coalition of quite disparate groups in that sense, and it it may be that success for them success comes to whichever one of them manages to be the most successful broad coalition, yeah. or it may be that success comes from whichever one manages to reorientate itself most successfully into a more coherent uh into a more coherent political coalition, albeit one that ends up winning quite a different mix of seats from the ones that it used to win. Um, and I suspect whatever happens in hindsight will appear to have been obviously the route that it should have taken but at the moment it feels like both parties have a huge uh, range of possible plausible strategies in terms of what's the mix of seats they might want to be winning in 15 years time. Mm.
1: I I, I completely agree um, with all of that and it's it's one one of the kind of inherent consequences of the mobilisation of new kind of divides on top of old divides is that it, it makes the geography, the political geography, which of course in our system is so important, more complicated and harder to navigate. So it's it's a lot more headaches for strategists in each of the parties. I think there is one really important structural factor with these new identity divides that that we're interested in that that poses particular problems for Labour more than the Conservatives And, and it's the tendency of these two rising groups, university graduates and ethnic minorities, to cluster together in essentially the same places Um, Now, you all know, of course, every Liberal Democrat knows about the inequities of the Mm -hmm. the first-past-the-post electoral system, and of course, under first-past-the-post, piling all of your voters up together in exactly the same seats is a terrible strategy in terms of electoral efficiency, and that is what we've been increasingly seeing as university education, And uh, ethnic minority status become stronger predictors of Labour voting, um, then you increasingly see what you see in in inner London seats, what you see in the seat I'm talking to you from now in Manchester Withington. You see Labour MPs with 30,000, even 40,000 vote majorities 60, 70, 80% of the vote. And you know, from from a an electoral geography perspective, that's a lot of wasted votes, mm. and it means that you can you can pile up forty percent of the vote and still fall well short on seats. Whereas the Conservatives, by growing increasingly rel- reliant on older, less educated voters, gain from the greater, more even geographical spread of those voters, and many of those red wall towns are basically very white and very old mm. uh, and back when voting was about class that didn't matter because what mm. mattered was they're very working class and they've got very you know tradition you know traditional industries in them that have mm. spawned particular labor cultures but if voting becomes about education and age and ethnicity then old white places go Tory and there's a lot more old white places and a lot more old white voters spread evenly across many places whereas you know the cities you know, could go 70, 80% Labor, but it won't deliver a Labor government. Mm. Um, and the, the fallout from that inc- incidentally for the Liberal Democrats mm. is also interesting because as, also, as I'm sure you would know, the Lib Dems had a number of very strong performances in 2019 in a kind of C-shaped region around the edge of London. And those are places with lots and lots of our sort of white identity liberals, younger university graduates. And, but there are also places where labor is locally moribund. Uh, and so I do wonder if the next Labour government is most likely to end up heading up a loose cluster of broadly progressive parties, SMP, Lib Dems as well, because the Lib Dems are basically better placed to win many of those seats where there are lots of graduates for historical reasons whereas the labor vote is too concentrated now mm-hmm. in many of the big cities to deliver a majority on its own so you could end up with a kind of uh, you know structural alliance of two parties that that's driven by by geography as much as anything
0: and i think that question about the the sort of university towns, as it were, or although quite often now this is constituencies that are in cities as well, where mm-hmm. you have a a young, liberal, ethnically diverse electorate. Um, I think there's both a, a sort of a, a pro and a con in that from the Lib Dem perspective. So the big drawback is, and this is why a lot of those seats now have, you know, absolutely massive Labour majorities, is that firstly, as a party, we've been much weaker much worse at tapping into the uh the ethnic minority communities than we have into the student graduate student and student graduate community so if you've got both of them together in an area that can be an opportunity but also a a a roadblock given our previous failures on Mm. that front but also you know if a seat is held by an opposition party it's much, much harder for another opposition party to win it off it. You know, opposition parties always find it easier uh, or nearly always find it easier to win seats off the party that's in government unless there's a very special factor like Scottish politics. Mm. Mm. And so it, it strikes me that in the long term, that political geography actually of concentrating the sorts of voters who the Lib Dems should best be able to appeal to into particular constituencies is quite promising for trying to break the curse you know the the cursed lock of the first past the post system but the immediate problem is if they're a lot for those seats which are labour held that looks a a much harder long shot one or two exceptional cases aside i'm sure there will be some labour held seats the party will have a really good go at winning at the next election but predominantly the party's going to be looking to win seats off the Tories. If you just yeah, you, know, you just look at the election results from last time. So the, the optimist, you know, could, you know the optimist can say, well, that's great because you've got your two election strategy. Then you've got your sort of C shaped, you know, plethora of Conservative held seats, which then results at some point in the Labour Prime Minister. And then you've got all of those urban university seats that Lib Dems can return to. Um, I, that's probably the most optimistic interpretation. Would you like to throw in maybe a less a less optimistic take on that.
1: Um, I might do something un- unusual. I, I, I know that Lib Dems must be sort of ingrained pessimists after <laughs> recent years, but I, I, I have an even more optimistic oh, wow. take Than that. Um, which which is this. and an, Another consequence of Labour's vote becoming concentrated in this mm. way is that Labour are no longer beneficiaries from the FPP status quo in the way that they were in the Blair-Brown years. Mm. Uh, And given that that trend is one that's been set in for decades, the the disadvantage they face under FPP could well continue to grow, which means that if your goal is electoral reform, which in the long run is far better for the structural presence of the Liberal Democrats Mm -hmm. in Parliament, then you may be pushing on a much more open door uh, in terms of at least electoral incentives with the Labour Party the next time you have an opportunity to talk to them about governing together than you would at any previous point in time because there'll be a lot of Labour strategies so who'll look at the maps and say you know if, if FPP continues we're, continue, we're going to continue facing like this structural disadvantage because our votes just cluster together too much so we should move to something more proportional because we'll gain seats from that process as well um, plus there's the possibility that it would split the right again, splitting the more socially conservative bit from the more economically liberal bit in a way that we saw kind of happen with UKIP, mm. but then, you know, at first past the post incentives sort of kick back in. Mm. Uh, so you, you may end up finding it easier to actually get electoral reform to happen um, because of these trends and the effect they have on how Labour think about um, electoral strategy than would have been possible before of course the big caveat to that is that it isn't just a matter of electoral strategy there's a lot of people in the labour party in particular in the institutional party who are kind of very culturally attached to a first past the post system and very particularly very wary of a more fragmented multi-party politics and it's that their reasons for that are not just pure electoral strategy i think although it's always the case that it's
0: easier to make a concession over something if making that concession is actually going to benefit you, oh, yeah. though, isn't it? You know, e- even if, as you say, there may be a principled objection, nonetheless when it comes to if there is any sort of hung parliament and negotiations over things like electoral reform, it's an awful lot easier if what you're asking someone to give up is in some way going to help them um, as well. So so yeah, it's, uh, this seems an improbably optimistic uh, set of... but I, I guess um, to sort of in you know throw some a bucket of cold water over sort of the Lib Dem situation. Um, yeah. Implicit in all of this is, I guess, the idea that a lot of these longer term trends should have benefited the Lib Dems more than they have. Mm. Um, so had the Lib Dems been doing better in a lot of those, you know, heavily university seats, then they would have been in a position to be ramping up you know large lib dem majorities in those seats rather than struggling to hold deposit while humongous labor majorities are being run so what's your what's your take on why those longer term trends and that shifting political geography which in theory should really help a third party struggling with first past the post why why are we not celebrating the fact there are more than 100 lib dem mps in parliament and all of that well at least i am not celebrating obviously i appreciate you're politically impartial
1: i'm not (laughs) celebrating that world um, I think it's a mixture of long-term, it, well, it, it's it's two different things with the two different groups that we, we bracket together as identity Liberals. So with ethnic minority voters, I, I think the problem is that those voters have been historically very strongly aligned with the Labour Party um, it's a kind of defensive identity politics orientation. Uh, I think one way of sort of illustrating what I mean is, is a quite arresting finding in one of... Lord Ashcroft, back in the days when, you know, David Cameron was was listening to Lord Ashcroft and, uh, um, and uh, wanted to sort of shift the party in a more diverse direction, he did a big report about ethnic minority voters' views of the Conservative Party. And one of the things he noticed was even younger ethnic minority voters who did not live through the Powell era would still be incapable of naming Enoch Powell they wouldn't necessarily be able to say anything about him uh, or what he'd said or what he'd done they just knew it was a name to conjure with in a negative way in a sense it was a name their parents would spit out as this is what the Tories are, are about and this is why they threaten us and The product of the Powell era was an extraordinarily strong alignment of ethnic minority voters with the Labour Party on the basis of they are the party that defend us from the people who threaten us. Um, And that has endured ever since. Uh, And indeed, the emergence of things like UKIP, the emergence of all the nationalistic politics around Brexit, I think there's undertones and resonances for that in terms of the conservative party for ethnic minority voters that, that serves to continually refresh and renew that alignment so put very brutally bluntly that they don't they're not willing to risk a vote for the lib dems um because they want to make sure that they vote for the party best place to stop the conservatives because that matters for them uh in terms of uh, you know uh, trying they think that's the best mechanism to, to ensure society becomes less prejudiced. Mm. Um, uh, The other thing, of course, is that a lot of ethnic minority voters are just not actually that socially liberal. (laughs) So the the inherent appeal of of social liberalism for older ethnic minority voters in particular is quite limited. With with white graduates and younger white voters, I think the story is more the contingency of recent times. So the coalition, I mean, much is often made about tuition fees. I mean, it, it's, it wasn't inconsequential. I certainly wouldn't argue that, but I think it's it's uh, taking a, a small piece of the, the tree for the whole tree. Mm. It was actually the broader uh, issue of being seen as a party that was close to the Conservatives that caused the, the, the problem.
0: And, and that's why the party support dipped so sharply immediately going into coalition you know, before the brown report on tuition fees reported before welfare reforms were introduced you know, before all those sorts of things that uh, labor supporters in particular like to very angrily mention on the doorstep in 2015 happened a uh, you know most a huge amount of support had already been lost and as you say i think it was a more general uh mismatch between people's expectations ahead of the election and then seeing nick clegg and david cameron happy and smiley in the rose garden
1: yes yes exactly and, and one, one of the things we talk about in the book is it's 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 a, I, I we use the analogy of you know if, if you fill up a bath with hot water or if, if a bath is half full with cold water you pull the plug and then turn the hot tap on the level of water will stay the same but the the composition of the water will change and labour's support remained relatively static between 2010 to 15 but that hid a lot of churn a lot of identity Conservative voters were going out the door uh, to the Conservatives and UKIP, but they were being replaced by identity Liberal voters recruited primarily uh, from the Liberal Democrats and also from the Greens. Um, so the, the, there was actually a very rapid change in terms of the educational composition of the white Labour voting electorate in that period. It was during that 2010 to 15 period in opposition that graduates actually became the biggest group in the Labour coalition. Every election before that, you know, working class, school leaver type voters were the numerically dominant group in the Labour coalition. By 2015, that was no longer true. And then, of course, that trend gets cemented by the election of a Labour leader who is basically if you're a sort of identity liberal voter or whatever you think of is other politics in other areas there's no doubt that, that, that Jeremy Corbyn is a believer in open borders in a society that seeks to eliminate discrimination he's against nationalism and all the intolerance that comes with it so for these kinds of voters the the Corbyn era Labour Party had a lot of natural appeal and therefore it was hard I think in that environment for the Liberal Democrats to renew their appeal to that section of the electorate um, because on those issues in particular um, the the Labour offer was very strong. Yeah yes I
0: mean I think Corbyn's attitudes were more probably more complex than that, in the sense that, for example, I'm a constituent of his, and I was really struck when... I wrote to him about um, human rights abuses in Syria that had Russian involvement, and I thought, well, look, if there's anything I can do as, you know, one humble individual, Actually, of all the people who the Russian government or the Russian ambassador might pay a little bit of attention to, it's probably Jeremy Corbyn. So I'm in quite a privileged position as a constituent of it. So I'll write to my MP and ask my MP to raise these issues with the Russian ambassador. And three times I asked, and three times Corbyn just didn't want to know. You know, so I... I but, but... So, and I think, you know, on, on uh, human rights abuses carried out by... Uh, opponents of the US you know Corbyn had a huge blind spot um, and likewise you know on, on anti-semitism but that said I think the broad point about uh, Corbyn's appeal and especially in 2017 I think m- much less so in 2019 but yeah, yeah absolutely you know I'd, 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 I'd agree with and um, we could spend a lot of time picking over the past of things like tuition fees but in fact I had a really good uh, podcast earlier this year with Chris Butler talking about Lib Dems and tuition fees so I'll include that in the show notes Um, and instead just to wrap up Rob um, we've we've roamed over quite a lot of different metaphors (laughs) and topics (laughs) in this conversation Um, so what's the best thing you've read heard or watched about British politics this year that you might recommend to listeners who want to follow up on any of the various loose threads we've thrown out in our conversation
1: Oh, goodness. Um, well, I mean, it's not it's not the kind of writing that I do, um, but partly because I'm now I'm now writing a book about the 2019 election. Uh, I, I read Hogrand um, and Maguire's um, uh, Left Out, is it Left called? Out, yes. That, 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 was a, that was a terrific, mm. terrifically interesting um, read. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I really enjoyed that.
0: Um, I'm halfway and... through it on audiobook now. Um and yeah, so it's, it's about, you know, basic Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and what happened, which is, yeah, is a fascinating. The one thing I do wonder about it is whether it suffers slightly from them not having been able to interview Jeremy Corbyn. Because Corbyn comes through, comes through the book as being a somewhat distant, mysterious, mercurial figure. And I think there's always a bit of a risk that that might be the truth, but it might also partly reflect that lots of other people were willing to be interviewed and he wasn't. And that said, that's just a minor caveat on, you know, about what is a very good book.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it is always a problem if you've got a, cent, a, a central character in, in a sort of story about political elites who's, who's not participating, because there's always going to be that question mark of, what would his account of this be and of course you can't know his inner thought process either you've got to mm. take other people's accounts of it and you know mm. uh, many authors and playwrights have made much play about how other people's accounts of what was going on in someone's head can be completely off so I, I agree and it, I think it was unavoidable I'm sure they tried to reach yeah. him but uh, but failed uh, in, in terms of a good read that's a bit closer to my sort of research interests and and the the, the themes of my new book one that I definitely would recommend is is a book it's it's not come out this year it came out a couple of years ago I reread it this year though it's called uh, The New Minority Uh, it's by an American professor called Justin Guest and it's transatlantic so it looks at two communities uh, Barking in London and Youngstown in Ohio Um, and uh, Youngstown was one of the places that swung most heavily to Trump In 2016, Mm -hmm. and it's it's a really because it's a it's a deep qualitative study looking at how these voters think and the nature of the kind of resentments that have arisen um, and been mobilised. And you know, in our book, we tend to take the big view from 30,000 feet, use a lot of the big survey data sets, but to really get a sense of how these voters think and feel, it's it's a tremendously interesting read. Excellent. Well, I will include links to both of those
0: books as well as to your book, Brexit Land, in the show notes. Um, thank you very much for that. That's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and if anyone has any questions or feedback on what Rob and I have discussed, you can find Rob on Twitter at Rob Ford Manx. Uh, me on Twitter at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. As I mentioned, look out in the show notes for follow-up links to various things that we've discussed, including uh, the three books mentioned. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast or make a donation to help with the costs by visiting nevermindthebarcharts.com and picking Donate in the menu at the top left. Thank you until next time.